0: America is back. Diplomacy is back. Well, you know... One minute. One minute. One minute. Okay. We are present everywhere, from Lithuania to the Sahel, Afghanistan, to Iraq, to Lebanon. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group.
1: Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Olo Oliker, speaking to you from Brussels. And
2: I'm your co-host, Hugh Pope, also joining from Belgium.
1: This week, we are talking about the wave of protests that swept across Kazakhstan in the first days of January, why they happened and what that might mean for Kazakhstan and beyond going forward.
2: I'm personally really glad we're doing an episode to discuss Central Asia, which I frequently visited as a fascinated reporter in the 1990s and 2000s. And I'm especially interested to hear about the situation in Kazakhstan and finding out what's happening in a country that we so often portrayed as skillfully able to balance between Russia, China and the West and as having just a bit more democratic and economic freedom than neighboring states, which was supposedly going to ensure that it had a stable and everlasting Regime.
1: Assuage your curiosity, Hugh, and perhaps correct any misapprehensions and inaccurate assumptions we might have had. We are very excited to have with us Nursait Niyazbekov, who's joining us from Almaty, which was uh, the epicenter of the protests. It is, of course, Kazakhstan's largest city and cultural capital. Nursait is an assistant professor of international relations at Kimap the um, university in Almaty. up stands for the Kazakhstan Institute for Management, Economics, and Forecasting, He's an expert on Kazakhstan and on the Central Asian region. He has taught at several other universities in Kazakhstan, and he has a PhD in politics from Oxford University. He also was out on the streets uh, the night of January 5th uh, to 6th on his bicycle taking video. We'll put a link to the video in the show notes so you can watch it. You really do get the sense of being the eyewitness that Nursight was to these events, seeing both the protesters out on the streets and some of the violence and the repercussions thereof. So do take a look at the video. But in the meantime, Nursay, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: So what's it like now in Almaty? Has everything calmed down? It's been a few days.
0: Almaty is waking up. It's going back to normal life. In fact, The weather has been suggesting that the chaos and the riots are over, because right after the day of the morning, which was announced by Tukhyev to be the 10th of January, the sun came up. And uh, so, uh, symbolically, it is suggesting that things are improving in Almaty and in Kazakhstan in general.
1: And shops are open, people can get to the banks to take out money, kind of All of these things that were derailed by the shutdown and communications are back up and running?
0: Yeah, absolutely. But uh, the curfew is still there and it will be there until the 19th of January. But uh, this doesn't really uh, prevent uh, the shops and restaurants uh, to be open until 7 p.m. I mean, we've had
1: curfews through COVID in much of the world, so perhaps that's not so unusual.
0: do you see the troops on the streets? There are only troops stationed around the city uh, police department and uh, some other strategic locations like military and law enforcement. But otherwise, you don't see any uh, troops uh, in the streets in general.
1: So let's talk about what happened. You know, the initial protests were people complaining, uh, frustrated that the price of liquefied petroleum gas, which is used for fuel, had doubled. And it had doubled because um, the government, which works with the semi-nationalized companies, controls the price. So they can say that it's about market forces, but really it's about a, okay, we decided to double the price. Soon enough, that doesn't seem to be what it's about at all. The slogan that is uh, everywhere is Chalquette which is old man get out, you know, and that used to be Bhatna who led Kazakhstan for so many years. So, but doesn't anymore, and even less so now. So what happened? How did it get from the price of fuel to we're sick of the old men who are running our country?
0: Well, uh, Kazakhstan being uh, an authoritarian regime is very sensitive to uh, any political protests protests which demand the resignation of the government, protection of human rights, liberal reforms, whatever. This is the reason why we should distinguish political from non-political protests. So on the 2nd of January, the public in the city of Zing in the western Kazakhstan, they have gathered on the city square as soon as they've learned that the government is about to double the price of liquid gas. So people gathered first to express their grievances about worsening of their living standards with uh, fuel prices going up, with the prices of food, uh, consumable goods and utilities, etc. This is what the public was first mobilized by. But uh, on the 3rd of January, a day later, the public uh, started to get politicized. So a protest which started as a socio-economic issue-driven was soon becoming a political protest. And the government, as I said in the beginning, is very sensitive to political demands. So in order to prevent the further politicization of these protests, Zumar Tukayev, the president of Kazakhstan, issued a decree that would put a ban on the plans of the government to double the price. So this kind of uh, slowed down the mobilization and the escalation of protests throughout the region. But it was a bit late because uh, the publics uh, elsewhere in other parts of Kazakhstan decided to support the demands of the Western Kazakhstanis. They said that, In addition to the problems with the liquid gas prices, we want some other problems solved. Like we have uh, low pensions, low salaries, inflation is high. So uh, people started to make uh, socioeconomic demands. But later, the public decided to politicize their demands and say, look, we all know that this is because of the corrupt government. This is all because of the corrupt political system. This is all because of the same people in the government. So why don't we demand full resignation of the government and punishing everyone who was involved in increasing the fuel prices? So this is how, by the 4th of January, It was apparent that these were no longer purely socio-economic protests. Things uh, were becoming much more political by then.
2: The government has presented it as being centralized, I think, was what the president said. Uh, On the other hand, we've heard that the public that you refer to was, in fact, incredibly diverse and was very spontaneous and scattered all over this enormous country the size of Western Europe with no apparent interaction between the various groups. To what extent was everything coordinated, do you think?
0: So uh, usually, as we know, in other countries uh, and in Kazakhstan, to mobilize a country as big as Kazakhstan, you would need a lot of resources, human resources, skills and financial resources if you were a social movement, if you were an opposition party, if you were an NGO of some sort. But these protests in January, they are a brilliant example of self-mobilization. There was no one behind the people in Western Kazakhstan or in Almaty who mobilized the people to the streets. The first group of people, the peaceful protesters, they were ordinary people unhappy with their standards of living. And no political party, no NGO or social movement was calling people to mobilise. And this is one of the highlights of these protests in Kazakhstan. There's this tendency, I think, when
1: we see a protest in a former Soviet country and you say, oh, color revolution, what color, what uh, fruit shall we attribute to it? But this is different, right? There's no political election that spurred it. There are no political parties other than the one in Kazakhstan, so there are no political parties contesting the election, and there's no leader who has been blocked from power. It's just
0: the people on the street, right? Absolutely. If you compare these protests to classical protests you mentioned, the color revolutions, right? you would not see any banners, people holding banners. You would not see any concrete and obvious leaders leading the crowd and then shouting to the masses in front of a large crowd. There were no symbols of the protest, but all the color revolutions, remember, they had a political party, one or uh, several political parties. They all had a symbol of resistance, peaceful resistance, either a flower, a color, or some other attribute. But this time in Kazakhstan, there was nothing, uh, no attribute, no repertoire of contention that you could characterize by a specific, classical type of protest. It was, like I said, self-mobilization. But quite quickly, it turned violent,
2: which is unlike some of the other color revolutions which go out onto public squares and have mass cries. There was violence, there was burning of property. Is it true that there was some element of regime infighting as well in what was going on? How did this violence start?
0: This is the question that bothers a lot of people in Kazakhstan. People are still uh, theorizing, hypothesizing, and speculating at what point the peaceful protest turned violent. By numerous accounts, and uh, my own observation suggests that something clicked in the end of the 4th of January, because um, throughout the day on the 4th of January, uh, there were peaceful protesters in a couple of locations in Almaty. They were just standing, they were not moving anywhere. They were just standing like classical protesters do, and uh, discussing matters and appealing to the government, whatever. But um, all of a sudden, in the end of the 4th of January, these peaceful protesters were shocked. And I follow some of the civic activists in Kazakhstan on social media and through their posts on Instagram, whatever. They're saying that all of a sudden there were these crowds that appeared out of nowhere crowds of people who had uh, very um, aggressive uh, moods and very uncertain intentions. And it was apparent that these people are different from the peaceful protesters, as if they had a mission to destroy, to cause chaos. They were very violent and they were very aggressive, right? People are saying that they were drunk, maybe they were under some uh, drug substances. We don't know that. But what we know for sure is that there was a group, and we don't know still for sure if it was centrally organized or not, but there was a group of people out of nowhere who had uh, different intentions than the peaceful protesters.
1: The Kyivs government talked about terrorists. They talked about foreign terrorists. They arrested more than 10,000 people, many of whom still remain in detention. What are they thinking? What were they thinking? And why do you think the response was so harsh? I mean, presumably it wasn't just that small group of violent people that faced government repercussions. It was everybody.
0: When it happened in the end of the day on the 4th of January, some of the peaceful protesters ran away from the venue. It was happening in the outskirts of Almaty. And when it happened, the whole crowd was uh, mobilizing, they were all gathering in the outskirts, and the whole crowd started marching to the city center. At that point, it was very hard to tell who are the peaceful protesters in this crowd and who are the so-called terrorists. Because in the end of the day, uh, this crowd, and I was amongst them, As a scholar, right, as a bystander, you see, I watched elderly people, I watched uh, women, I watched young people, but uh, it was very hard for me to tell if this mass was homogenous or not. It was extremely heterogeneous, and I wouldn't be surprised if the government found traces of religious extremists there if there were any criminals there, if there were just random people who felt like this is a great opportunity to storm a shop, you know, to shoplift. It was a moment that clicked and mobilized anyone who was idle and who wasn't busy cooking or looking after the children. So anyone who was not happy with the regime could technically be in the crowd. War and Peace. A podcast by the International Crisis Group.
1: You're listening to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. And Hugh and I are talking to Nursait Nezbekov about the recent protests in Kazakhstan. So, Nursait, the government shut down the internet. They um, effectively blocked communication. How difficult did that make it to know what was going on throughout the country? And also, how did you see that affecting how people around the world uh, looked at Kazakhstan?
0: I should point out uh, first and foremost that internet was live uh, during the 4th, 3rd, and the 2nd, 3rd, and the 4th of January, which helped the initial peaceful crowd of people to mobilize. But when there was very few signs of the protest being peaceful, the government started to crack down on the protesters. This happened in the morning of the 5th of January. And it was this time that the government started to shut down the internet. For me, it was very hard to know what was going on. And because I wanted to be kept in the loop, to be informed of what was going on, like anyone else in Kazakhstan, people were just making audio calls, telephone calls in order to check on each other, to check what's happening. And in fact, I had students, international students, who were unable to reach out to their families in Europe, in states, and to basically tell them that they're fine. And they had to message through regular text messages. So uh, shutting down Internet as a method to stop mobilization, as a method to stop the coordination of violence, is definitely a tool which is justified. But uh, at the same time, uh, it severely complicated the communication uh, between uh, ordinary people. And this is why people started panicking immediately on the 5th of January. So
1: the other step that uh, the Turkic government took on the 5th of January was to call in the Collective Security Treaty Organization, the CSTO, which for the first time in its 30-year history actually said, oh, okay, yes, we'll help, right? They did not help in Kyrgyzstan when there was ethnic violence in 2010, When Armenia asked for help during its war with Azerbaijan a couple of years ago, the CSTO did not feel that it was uh, within its remit to respond. Why do you think Tokayev took this step of asking for CSTO help?
0: Well, this is another very popular question that everyone is discussing at the moment. So there are many uh, theories. In my personal opinion, Tokayev requested the help of CSTO for the following reason. First, Tokayev announced that the country's law enforcement and the security apparatus was behind these protests. By behind, I mean, they weren't the ones who organized this, but their inaction, right? Their idleness was to blame for why things got out of control. And this is why he removed Karim Masimov, from the post of the National Security Committee chair. In addition to that, Tokayev also uh, dissolved uh, the cabinet of ministers. Tokayev made uh, immediate changes in the country's law enforcement. This could have uh, solved the problem, according to many, without uh, resolving, uh, without uh, requesting Russia's help. But you should imagine a situation where the security apparatus in Kazakhstan was paralyzed uh, during the 5th and the 6th of January, during these two days of massacre in Almaty. there was no police, there was no government, there was no power. You could do whatever you want. You could even shoot a random bystander on the street and you could easily get away with that. Well, that was because the security apparatus was totally paralyzed. And the security bosses, they simply didn't know what to do because there was a change of power in their security apparatus. They couldn't know who to listen to. And so um, there was a crisis of trust and confidence. And so Tokayev believed that this is the time for him to uh, use the help of Russia and the CSTO in order to take the situation under control as soon as possible. I was also very surprised that this whole request was satisfied in such a short time. You know how bureaucracy, right, gets into the way. But this was like so rapid, and the Russian troops were deployed so quickly to the region, to Kazakhstan, and that it also uh, makes uh, some uh, conspiracy theorists come up with all sorts of other theories, as if uh, Russia and Putin were kind of uh, waiting for Tukayev to make that call. But there is no evidence, right? No concrete evidence to suggest that. But this is my opinion, how it happened. And in the end, they didn't do much, right? They provided
1: some static security and have now appear to be going home. So it really does seem to be a yes, okay, we'll help you. All right. Mm -hmm. It was
0: like a formality in the end.
2: Looked at from the outside, does it have broader ramifications for Kazakhstan's regional position, which has always seemed to be so balanced? I mean, the U.S. oil companies have huge interests in Kazakhstan. China has huge interests in Kazakhstan, 20% of its natural gas. and Even further away countries like Turkey, if you follow the Turkish press, seem to be extraordinarily interested in developments there. Is there a big change? Has Kazakhstan now entered a new stage in terms of its relationship with Russia, or is it a passing cloud?
0: Yeah, I would suggest that it is not a major groundbreaking occurrence. Kazakhstan, China and Russia have always been allies. In the recent decade, the ties between them have grown immensely. So it was a logical move. If you're talking about the repercussions of this for the future, well, the US has long abandoned Kazakhstan, the region. And uh, Kazakhstan being the closest ally of Russia and China, for Kazakhstan it wasn't a big deal, right, for the US to pull out from the region. So uh, it was no brainer that Tukhaev would knock on the door of Russia and say, please help us. So does Tukhaev come out of this stronger,
1: weaker, Nazarbayev, you know, who retired in 2019, um, but stuck around as chair of the National Security Council, is now out of a job. Some of his network has been dismantled. Takayev has put more of his own people in place. I mean, do he take advantage of these protests to cement his power? Or does the fact of the protests and the fact that he needed to call for help and the crackdown actually weaken him in the eyes of the Kazakh population?
0: This is also a very uh, tricky question because, uh, again, <laughs> there are many opinions on this. But my impression is that uh, Tukayev's popularity has risen. He's done very good in terms of communicating with the public what he's doing, what's happening in the country. So he's been around. He As a crisis manager, he's done a good job. It's not the perfect job because there are still problems with the human rights violations of some of the detained protesters. There are problems with uh, the indiscriminate shootings of the people. And this is how I nearly got shot in the evening of the 6th of uh, January. And it's no surprise why uh, there are so many peaceful civilians who were shot by the military. So um, on one hand, it may appear like Tokayev is now Putting an end to a duality of power in Kazakhstan, and um, also his popularity, his ratings have also gone up. If you follow the social media and if you talk to the people in Kazakhstan, um, but on the other hand, I wouldn't be so uh, optimistic about Tokayev's future grip to power because while Nazarbayev's presence is not there. It may uh, send a message across to many people that Nazarbayev is gone. But it's too early to celebrate the post-Nazarbayev era because dictators are very smart. And uh, Tokayev, by the way, is playing very cautiously. He has not done anything that cannot be undone. He hasn't been mentioning Nazarbayev's name concretely. He hasn't been attacking uh, any of the Nazarbayev's relatives directly. So, in his rhetoric, he's been very cautious. And uh, to me, it's a sign of one thing. There is right now negotiations between the Nazarbayev's clan, by Nazarbayev's clan, I mean his relatives and his immediate elites, closest elites, and Tukayev's clan, Tukayev's surrounding, right? So, on one hand, Nazarbayev's elite is trying to save face in face of what happened, right? And if Nazarbayev is indeed in a very dire state of health, we don't know, anyway, they are trying to uh, negotiate an exit to Nazarbayev from the existing power, from the existing regime. And they're also trying to secure the interest, the business, economic, political interests of the Nazarbayevs clan. So um, this is why this is all uh, looking like uh, they're trying to extend and win time as much as possible. And this is why there are so many theories about what's going on, because Tukayev hasn't been playing very explicitly. You've been. remarkably
2: open with us in talking about all these internal matters in Kazakhstan while yourself being in Kazakhstan. I think it speaks to that. What uh, I'm sure Olya will tell me is an old journalistic trope. But can you tell us a little bit more about that? It does seem like an unusually open society in Kazakhstan that can tolerate such freedoms. And did these freedoms actually play a role in the protests? And how do you see that going forward? Will Kazakhstan be able to keep its special place in the region as a slightly more open uh, society than others?
1: just jump in. How special is it with over 10,000 people in prison because they happen to be out on the streets?
0: Well, indeed, Kazakhstan has often been um, labeled as a consolidated authoritarian regime, but there are many different types of authoritarian regimes, different classifications. And in these classifications, Kazakhstan is often labeled as a soft authoritarian regime or even enlightened authoritarian regime, right? So in that sense, um, there is some freedom in what you can say, right? in what you can write, academic freedoms wise, faculties of private universities, non-governmental, right? They can um, afford to speak more freely than academicians elsewhere. But nevertheless, on the other hand, there are still problems with independent media in Kazakhstan, which is uh, literally non-existent. Most of the media is controlled by uh, the Nazarbayevs family and by the Nazarbayevs elites. So, uh, in addition to that, uh, Tokayev, uh, when he came to power, remember, he announced a set of uh, liberal reforms in order to win trust of the public, in order to sell himself as a new president with a new agenda. So um, as a result of that, even today, the government is, uh, and the police is uh, watched closely by the president apparatus to be very gentle. With the protesters. This is the reason why the police was not shooting the people on the 2nd, 3rd and the 4th of January. They were playing very gentle with the protesters. This is what can be attributed to the Tukayev's reforms. As you said
2: that uh, you didn't think that this was a watershed moment for Kazakhstan's relations with Russia or geopolitically, Um, do you think that the trend of this soft authoritarianism will continue or do you think that uh, Kazakhstan has tripped up and will have difficulty in getting back to where
0: it was? Authoritarian regimes do not change so quickly, right, Uh, and especially Kazakhstan which is built on the personality of a single person and the whole political system, which is uh, centered around uh, corrupt officials and everything, it's very hard to dismantle it. So in that sense, uh, my um, forecast is that Kazakhstan will remain and will evolve around the same trajectory where Nazarbayev left.
1: And in terms of economic reforms, the things that people were asking for in the protests, will we see many of those?
0: Yeah, uh, this is what uh, Tokayev has actually mentioned in his uh, public address on the 11th of January. They will uh, review the social programs, they will improve the welfare of the police, they will uh, somehow address the problems of the ordinary, and the poor, the youth. So, um, social welfare-wise, Tokayev promised to be more caring and more responsive to the people. But uh, he didn't say anything about uh, the political reforms, political liberalization. And I don't think that we should expect, as I said earlier, any major openings in the political system. Nursai,
1: thank you so much for taking the time to join us and shedding some light on a situation that uh, I think surprised people who perhaps should not have been surprised, surprised people who just weren't paying enough attention, but helping us to understand both what happened and what might happen in the future. Really, really appreciate uh, you joining us. And um, listeners, I expect you have also found this fascinating. If you want to read some of Nursett's, um academic writing, he is on academia.edu. We are going to put a link to the YouTube uh, video that he took the night of January 5th to 6th in the show notes. So you can take some time to watch that. I really do think it'll be worth your time. He's not terribly active on Twitter, but he is there. His Twitter handle is just his last name, Nigazbekov, Bekov. So you can check him out.
2: A thanks from me too, Nusayit. Uh, fascinating insights that I hadn't really are surprising to me and uh, really great to hear direct from you. And if any of our listeners want to have a look at Crisis Group's work, do check out our website, crisisgroup.org. We are also publishing a detailed uh, Q&A that develops many of the themes that uh, we've looked at in this episode. Just navigate on the website to our country page for Kazakhstan. And for our past work on Europe uh, and its neighbors, including Central Asia, check out the other regional pages from the left-hand side of the website.
1: You should follow Crisis Group and us on Twitter for more on Kazakhstan and the world at large. Crisis Group is at Crisis Group. Hugh is at Hugh underscore Pope. I'm at Olya Olukar. Crisis Group is also on Facebook and Instagram at Crisis Group.
2: And if you've enjoyed this podcast or have any suggestions, do give us a shout out on Twitter or wherever you are online. You can also email us at podcasts at crisisgroup.org. And of course, we'd love it if you could leave us a rating and a review as well.
1: War and Peace is a partner podcast in a network of podcasts focused on Europe, Europod. Check out some of the others.
2: Big thanks to producers, uh, Bool Media, and to our coordinator, Finn Dunbar-Johnson, whose diligent research helps Olya and I prepare for each and every episode.
1: And the biggest thanks, as always, are to you, our listeners. Thank you for tuning in, and we're looking forward to chatting with you again in about two weeks. But for now, goodbye. Goodbye. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group.